Welcome back to Customer Success Talks, Real Challenges, Experts Advice. I'm your host, Byron Toruño, and with me, Naf Thomas. Today, we're privileged to have with us Ed Powers, a veteran in the field with over 20 years of consulting and customer success experience. In today's discussion, we will dive into building a customer success culture. We will also explore two common challenges, how to start building a customer success culture in a company that is not yet customer-centric, and how to align different departments during the process. Ed will also touch on the importance of neuroscience when building a customer success culture. So, whether you are an experienced pro or just starting your career, join us as we explore the tools and skills needed to build a customer success culture. Let's dive in. Hold your horses there. Before we start today's episode, I just want to remind you that our mission to provide expert advice and tackle real-life challenges in the world of customer success is expanding. Yes, we are expanding. We are thrilled to announce our collaboration with CS Connect, a global community built for customer success professionals just like you. CS Connect brings together professionals at all levels of their customer success journey. So whether you are a newcomer, an industry leader, or anywhere in between, CS Connect provides a platform for you to discuss challenges, learn from others, and more. Their mission is to empower you. They are dedicated to fostering growth and build a community that emphasizes in skill development, knowledge sharing, and creating amazing connections. But there are some rules to follow. Number one, be positive, make an effort, be a role model, and remember that we all win together. So pause right now, go to LinkedIn, and search for CS Connect. See you there. Nav, how are you today? How's everything so far in Sydney? Yeah, great. Um, it's still pretty cold here today, but uh, hopefully it starts warming up in a in a bit. But uh, as a Canadian complaining about the the winters in Sydney is kind of dumb, I know. But uh, yeah, going going well. Thanks, Baron. <laughs> well, I have to say that I'm kind of ignorant here because so it is. It get cold in Australia. How cold does it get? Not very cold. <laughs> Not relatively very cold, but I guess I've gotten used to the winters here. Now I'm getting cold here as well. So maybe it's just me. <laughs> I have had, I have received that question many times because people think that Costa Rica is always so like it's tropical country and it's, but they think that it's always sunny. And no, we also have our cold parts in the mountains. Um, but today we're not going to talk about weather. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we're going to talk about customer success and we're going to bring challenges to the table. Today, we have an amazing guest with um, 20 years of consulting and customer success in his curriculum, has started four startups and also interested in neuroscience and he's applying neuroscience in customer success. How amazing is that? And hopefully, maybe in the future, a book is going to come. Um, Ed Powers, how are you today? Delighted to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for being here and helping the community. Every guest that is here um, is so passionate about customer success and helping others. And that's why we are here all 
um, gathering and talking about um, customer success. Ed and Nav and everyone listening, today's topic is the success mindset, building a customer success culture. That's what we're going to focus today. But before jumping into the topic, we want to get to know you, Ed. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this amazing career? Yeah, as you said, uh, I've been working in customer success for a long time now, about a dozen years. Um, but I started my career at HP. I was in sales. I came fresh out of school, worked for Hewlett Packard, uh, was there about 12 years, moved into um, marketing and then into operations and then left the company, did four startups, as you mentioned. Um, and along the way, got a real bug for consulting and an interest in uh, how the brain works. And I think everything we do in customer success leads up to a decision. So I'm interested in how people make decisions individually and collectively. Amazing. Definitely. Um, you're also interested in statistics in customer success. Am I right? Yeah. Analytics, uh, you know, it's uh, it's that scientific bent. I'm actually an electrical engineer by training. Mm. So I'm into math and physics, and I think you can uh, you can do a lot with that to really understand human behavior. You know, anything that we advance in science is always backed by evidence, and uh, uh, statistics and uh, modeling are always part of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What do you like to do when you're not working in customer success? How do you spend your free time? Well, uh, I have a wonderful uh, wife and son. My son's in medical school, so we like to check in with him from time to time. Um, we have some great friends, like hanging with them. And I'm a cyclist here in Colorado. Uh, a lot of good hills for uh, for climbing, so I do a lot of that. Nice. And nowadays, it's really good weather. Am I right? Yes. <laughs> Although it's been very rainy this year. Very rainy. And um, at if you had a superpower to help you excel in your customer success career, what would it be and why? Um, yeah, mind I, control is not an option. <laughs> yeah, that would be better. That would definitely. I don't know. Be it will make it easy. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think curiosity. You know, that's that's one thing that um, that I would just recommend to your listeners is be curious about the world around you. Try to figure out how it works. Right. What are your customers doing? Why are they doing it? How do they make money? How does your company work? How do things get decided? Uh, you know, the more you ask, the more you're curious and interested in how the world works, the better that will serve you in your career. You also mentioned once we were preparing for the for the call, um, we spoke about and asked you for feedback and you said never assume in customer success. And I took that into in, in grant and, all, and always keeping that in mind, curiosity, empathy, and never assume in customer success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, I also forgot to mention that Ed is considered the top 25 customer success influencers published by, custom, by success coaching, sorry. But Ed, I'm curious, how can customer, a customer success manager be part of that list? Can you tell our listener, maybe there's a future one here listening. Yeah, and there are a lot of uh, individual contributor CSMs that are on that list. And I think it's just, it's. do you have something to say? Is it something that's unique? And uh, how are you saying it? How are you getting your message out there? If it's on uh, uh, LinkedIn or other venues, uh, you know, make your perspectives known and make them unique. And I think if you do that and you're consistent about that, you're going to get on people's radar. And let's jump into the main topic of today. 
this topic that everyone has been waiting for, and it's building a customer success culture in a company. There are two challenges that we are going to focus today. One is how to start building a customer success culture in a company that is not yet customer-centric. Oof, that sounds like going uphill. And also, how to align different departments when it comes to that. But before we jump into the challenges, let's start with the basics. And could you briefly explain what customer success culture means to you and why is it essential for organizations to pay attention to it? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I guess I would start by defining what is a culture, right? Uh before we kind of characterize what type of culture. Um, and I really like the, the definition that uh, Edgar Schein uses from, uh, he's at MIT's um, Sloan School of Management. He calls it a pattern of automatic assumptions unconsciously held and take it for, taken for granted. So uh, the interesting thing about that is that we don't stop to think about the culture. It's something that surrounds us. We feel what the culture is but we may not be fully conscious or, or aware of those behaviors and how it directs our own behaviors and other people's behaviors. Um, so it's, it's something that surrounds us and influences everything that people do. So I would start with that as a, as a framework. Um, and, you know, there's good company cultures and toxic ones. And if you <laughs> have been in different companies, you probably know exactly what I mean is that there's a different feel that you get uh, being surrounded by people in uh, one organization versus another. Um, You know, good company cultures are ones that are, you know, high trust, a lot of respect for each other. People collaborate. They're interested to hear what other people have to say. Everyone's input is valued. Um, They care about each other. There's high energy. There's high performance with these teams. You know, those are fun groups to work with. And, and you need to cherish those because they're not that common. Uh, on the other hand, you know, other end of the extreme are those toxic work environments that are just the opposite, right? There's a lot of backstabbing. People don't trust each other. People hoard information. You're suspicious. It's disrespectful, abusive. You know, there's all kinds of stories about that. And I've certainly seen my share of those too. So yeah. being there, uh, did you like it? Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's, so you ask the question, well, how do we wind up here? And, you know, why are some really good and and why are some uh, just, you hate going to work? It's just uh, what's with those. Uh, And there is an interesting uh, connection between culture and business performance. There was a study, uh, Harvard Business Review showed a correlation between uh, strong company cultures and customer satisfaction. And there's a lot of evidence that shows overall customer satisfaction links to business performance. So if, if culture links to satisfaction and satisfaction links to performance, the two are going to be connected, right? So uh, so it does pay off um, that, uh, you know, investing in and creating really good cultures obviously attracts the right kinds of individuals, keeps those folks, and uh, people perform at higher levels when, the, when those cultures are, are very positive ones. Interesting info here. I would like to also hear Nav's comments. Have you ever worked in a company that has a culture that is not customer-centric, Nav? How was your experience being, you know, that person who has the mindset of the customer here, the customer there, giving ideas here, but did you notice that you're not in the right culture? How was that experience for you? 
It's, it's happened a couple of times. Um, I've worked for a few different organizations and, and, and two of them definitely stand out to me in, in that sense, but two both in very different ways. <laughs> One was, like I mentioned, very toxic and, and really didn't uh, drive the performance based on the fact that it just didn't create a very good environment. But the one that I like to call out definitely is the one that I worked at where um, it was a very traditionally um, sales-led um, organization and they were thinking about bringing customer success into this very, very traditional sales uh, um, organization. And bringing in customer success where um, account managers needed to then start focusing on just hunting and taking all that farming and putting it into the CS side. Um, there's this um, there's this interesting phenomenon that happens when um, organizations like that try to bring in customer success into their organization is that they lift and shift what farming um, account managers do and try to place it into what customer success is supposed to be. By... Uh, by design, the farming part of account management is very reactive, whereas customer success is supposed to be built around a proactive approach, which essentially means there's, there needs to be a lot more ownership than, than the original thought process around how that farming needs to translate into customer success. So what had happened is I came in with a 30, 60, 90 day plan, and then I had to tack on another six months to that just to be able to change the mentality around how um, individual contributors within the organization were running, as opposed to even just looking at the different departments and how to build a customer-centric approach from, from uh, that perspective. It took a long time to change that mentality, but once it did happen, and it was with a little bit of kicking and screaming, <laughs> but um, and and some you know and some people that you know walked out the door. But now, when I look back at how how that was and, and how they're operating right now, it's it's night night and day, right? Because the idea of, of actually building that uh, customer success framework within the organization ground up was crucial in its success as opposed to just going the other um, way where um, it becomes a supporting function for the sales team. So it, it was it was a, it was a very interesting um, uh, journey to get to the point that, that we got to, but it took 12 months to get to that point. Well, yeah, I also have my my background on working in, in an amazing company that, um, but they were product led, product centric. So although they, they hired me as a customer success specialist and I came with a customer centric mind, there were people who were also thinking like me, um, it was always difficult to start implementing and improving customer, um, customer experience or customer success initiatives. And that's, if you're going through this, that's, you should stay here. First of all, that's why we have Ed and Nav here to give us some really interesting tips, good ones, actionable when, if you are in that situation. So we are in, in this customer era, right? And as customers get smarter, as customers know what they want and have so many options around them, they are making the companies and the industry move towards them. So, there's a lot of benefits on being a customer-centric organization. But before we jump into more into that, I want to ask, what is the difference between customer-centric and customer success culture? Are they the same? Yeah, and I would say, um, you know, customer success, most people associate in software anyway to a function, right? And customer uh, centricity or customer experience People don't necessarily, although some support teams are called a customer experience, they don't associate that with a function. So being customer-centric, in my view, is 
really getting it, uh, really understanding, uh, you know, why you're in business, what you're there to do and um, where your paycheck comes from. Right. I mean, when you really understand that, then that changes your orientation. Um, but there are a lot of barriers that stand in the way. I mean, I like the examples that you both covered, one being in a sales centric organization, the other in a, in a product centric. You know, there's a, um, a organizational behavior called siloism. And uh, we see this all the time and we're not crazy when we see this, right? We see that that uh, people within functions in an organization tended to, to do what optimizes their function, right? This is their team. These are our metrics. We're going to do what, what we're going to do to make ourselves successful. So instead of having nice, smooth workflows and a nice, smooth customer experience, things get chopped up. And for example, you know, we probably all had the, the situation where we call a bank for something, right? And there's a problem. And we talk to one person on the on a call center um, line, and then we go through a whole explanation. Oh, no, you, this isn't the right department. Let me transfer you over somewhere else. So then you go to that other department and they say, uh, you know, maybe the line drops and you got to call them back and, you know, have the same conversation. They transfer you over. You talk, you finally wind up talking to their de department and they say, well, why are you talking to me? This, this isn't my department. Talk to this other department. Right. And uh, that's very we've all had that experience and our customers do, too. And, and SaaS companies are, are notorious for that kind of behavior. But what we're seeing here is something that's very natural. And it's how we humans actually behave with each other. We, rather than have nice, smooth workflows, a nice, consistent experience at customers um, and internal employees, uh, you can get your work done. You Everything gets chopped up. You have to go through the chain of command and things get thrown over the wall. And people are focused on what's in front of them and don't, don't know what happens either upstream or downstream. And where does that come from? Well, um, there are three factors that really drive that. And you will see siloism in companies starting with about 40 employees. It's, it's just a natural behavior of organizations. So it comes from our own, our own human nature. And the thing is, is that we have been most of human history, right? We've been around about three and a half million years, uh, hominids on this planet. Our species about 300,000. But, you know, businesses have only been around for maybe 150 years, right? Large businesses. Um, the agricultural revolution is when people started to actually start to work with each other in larger groups. That was about 10,000 years ago. So we're not well adapted <laughs> to work in very large, complex social groups where most of our, our history was in small groups of 15 to 20 people. So we have not evolved a way to deal with a lot of complexity and a lot of different people. So we tend to revert back to our programming, which is to be successful in smaller groups, 15 to 20 people. So uh, we run up against our own human limitations in these larger groups. And there are three that are really notable. The first is something um, a behavioral scientists call WYSIADI. Uh, this is uh, Daniel Kahneman, and that stands for what you see is all there is. And what that means is our brains, uh, when we think about something, a reality, we base that reality on what's easy to remember and what we personally have experienced. So if we don't have a direct personal experience, it's very hard for us to imagine someone else's reality. We just know our own, right? So when we do that and we make decisions and we act and we behave, it's within our own little bubble, if you will, right? So all of us do that. And when we're in a bubble with multiple other people, that's how we behave. This is our, this is our little group. 
So that's one factor. Another one is something called tribalism, which we see in our politics. There's an us versus them behavior that comes from our our uh, human roots. And they have run very interesting experiments with small children where they will give them, you know, an orange colored shirt or a blue colored shirt. And just by putting on a shirt, they ask children, what do you think of those other children wearing the other colored shirt? And they start to ascribe negative things to the other group and positive things to their own group as kids. So we're hardwired to do that. That was beneficial to our evolution, right? Because we had to compete with other groups in territories and we had to bond with people within our own group. So that was advantageous. Um, so, and then the last one is just uh, conditioning, right? It's, it's, we tend to repeat behaviors that we're conditioned to repeat. So if we're in a structure where there's rewards and recognition systems and metrics, and we're rewarded for certain behaviors and punished for others, then we start to behave that way. So if you combine all three of those, it's no wonder that you get siloism. It's no wonder that you get these pockets of groups that are executing to optimize what they're doing and pretty much ignorant of how that impacts everybody else. So that's how you get sales-driven cultures and product-driven cultures. Whoever is the loudest and strongest tends to dictate it for that organization, right? But that's not being customer-centric. So when we talk about being customer-centric, in a sense, we have to do things that are very unnatural for us. We have to break, we have to understand we have this underlying human behavior, um, and we have to counteract that. The uh, tribalism and the us versus them, there's a running, there's a running joke in the customer success industry around uh, CSMs and sales are somehow sworn enemies. And um, it always, it always, um, it doesn't surprise me, but it does make me sad how often I hear that. And and the reality is that, you know, when we when we start start to think about um, a CS team and how they need to be customer centric, and then on the flip side, having this us versus them mentality with sales, where we're you know not trying to drive towards the right uh, um, common goal is is so contradictory in, in that in that environment. And it just it, it's interesting that it constantly keeps happening. Um, and then, and then the, the idea that, you know, the, that's not my job or, you know, why would I care about that is something that I've seen so often in, in SaaS uh, businesses where you, I mean, it's not even just CS and sales. You look at the way their products and CS works, you know, uh, together or, uh, you know, how marketing and CS can work together to, to you know, to drive the right, uh, um, outcomes. Everyone thinks about the metrics that they're held against. Um, and that's all that really seems to matter. Um, whenever I, whenever I join a, an organization and, um, especially when there's a separate onboarding and adoption team, um, one of the questions I ask them is if you were to think about the process that you follow or the journey that, that you created for the customer and you were to look at from the customer's perspective, what could you do differently? And far too often I hear it, well, the sales team doesn't do this properly or the, you know, that team doesn't do things properly. I'm like, well, all right, but if you cannot look within your own processes from the customer's perspective to try and reduce friction for the customer to, uh, within a journey with the organization, then we're only really thinking about our own journey and our own metrics. We are not looking at it from the customer's perspective. So it's, it's, it's always very interesting to see how often that does proliferate throughout the organization and how 
difficult it can sometimes be when there's been so, you know, that hasn't been a foundational sort of um, a pillar in the way that the organization operates to actually change that mentality. It takes time to actually bring everyone around to start thinking about the customer and everything that they do, um, as opposed to just looking at your own metrics. I think that's a great perspective, Nav. Um, and perspective taking is something is a trick that works really, really well. Um, in fact, our brains are not naturally wired to think about things from anything but our own perspective. There's some some interesting science that shows that um, self-referential information takes a priority place in our short-term memory. So we tend to live within our own thinking in our own head. And simply the act of what you had just said, Nav, you know, looking at this from someone else's perspective, imagine you're the customer. How would you feel about that? What would you do? How would that strike you? Just asking that question, which is a simple thing to do, actually activates a different part of the brain. It gets people broken out of their own self-referential thinking, and it activates a, a different part of the brain that forces people to imagine, oh, yeah, if I were that person and that, you know, how would I actually look at it differently? So asking the question forces people's brains to activate different regions and to think differently. And that's something anybody can do. You know, a manager certainly can do it, an individual contributor, is just to, to do some perspective taking. If it were you, how would you feel? How would this impact you? How would you think about that? So that's a wonderful trick to get us out of, uh, you know, that internal mindset. And if we grab all of this uh, amazing information that we're giving out there, and these are tools for people who are in the situation where they are a customer success manager or has the mindset of the customer being first, and they are in a, or they are in an organization that is not customer centric. How can they start using these tools? There's a set, there's a big table with all of these tools that you're given. How can they start using those tools to start actually gaining momentum, start uh, talking to the C-suite, start demonstrating um, this basically, I will say changing a culture of a company that that takes time. It takes knowledge and takes a lot of momentum as well. How can a, the person listening to this is start using these tools that you're given to start creating that momentum and that culture in their company. Yeah. And I, perspective taking is one very important tool and it's something anybody can do. The other one I would say is a trick that writers use and that is to show, don't tell. So in any good writing, in any good movie, um, you don't explain things to people, you show them. And in customer success, we have that opportunity to do that because we're interacting with customers all the time. So, for example, we record a Zoom call and a customer makes a comment about a product deficiency or a bug or something else. Capture that, <laughs> that little uh, video clip. Make a, you know, if you hear this a lot of times, capture a number of those clips and do, do a supercut of all those clips. And pass those along to your product people. Hey, I'm not telling you this. This is just what I'm hearing. Let me just share this with you. When someone else says it, when a customer says that, it has a whole lot more power than if you say it. If they use their own words, if they describe this is how it impacts me, again, that triggers different thinking on the part of the, the receiver of that. So uh, show, don't tell. What is the impact? 
And how can I show someone a truth uh, about the circumstance without having to explain it to them? It's a simple little trick, but once again, it's very impactful and very powerful. And if you are an individual contributor to CSM, if you start demonstrating those behaviors, guess what? People around you start to do the same thing because they'll see how powerful it is and they will imitate that. And as you start to do that, people that, that start to understand and break outside their own little uh, bubble, um, that's how movements get started. They are not started top down. They are, they are typically, you know, the, mo the most powerful movements happen at the grassroots. And there's some fascinating research that shows that too. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, getting momentum, building things, smallest, um, the smallest actions that you can take on a day-to-day -day basis influence all the people around you. And when ideas catch on, it, it tends to build. And when it gets to a certain point, an executive looks at that and say, hey, that's cool. We should do that everywhere. And then all of a sudden it blows up, right? So you can start a movement out just doing small things um, that can get picked up and built upon. I actually really like that, the whole uh, show, don't tell. Um, and I think um, when, I, when I look at it from the perspective of uh, bringing customer success into an organization where a customer says, uh, does not exist and trying to build the value proposition of having a customer-centric um, um, central team that everyone works around to try and drive a customer's um, journey and, and the success for those customers. Um, one of the interesting things that I've, I've noticed is uh, um, when you're building that out, um, and going back to the idea that, that you just mentioned, Ed, around uh, everyone is, you know, naturally thinking about, you know, what's in it for them is to then ask yourself what's in it for them when you're trying to bring that into, into the, um, the conversation. So you look at sales and you think, well, you know, what do they care about? They care about more, more numbers, right? What does product care about? They care about feedback that actually drives a, a roadmap that has a return investments. Um, for marketing, it, it's about, you know, bringing in the, the voice of the customer for them to be able to generate leads. And you start to build out um, the cross-functional remit of the customer success organization within, within, within a company. And then you go off and you show it to each of these different organizations what cost, being a customer-centric, a customer success-driven organization can be. And that starts to bring all these incredible results to each of these different departments. And so it doesn't then just become a retention engine or just a growth engine. It becomes this mentality around, well, let's actually drive um, everything that we do around this customer-centric approach because it actually brings results into so many different parts of the business, which then becomes this um, um, symbiotic environment where all of these different functions can then um, support each other to be able to drive that level of success, both with the customer as well as internally. Right. And, you know, if you're in a leadership position, you can definitely influence a lot more than uh, someone who's in an individual contributor role. I mean, uh, in very progressive, uh, mature organizations, they understand this behavior and they put countermeasures in place and they do things very deliberately to try to break down these natural barriers that crop up between departments. So, for example, one thing that's done in organizations uh, top down um, is storytelling and constantly bringing up having customers come in and talk at talk at sales uh, kickoffs, right, and talk about their experience. And here's here's what I did, what I learned, and how it impacted me and my staff. The more that we can 
um, shine a light on customers, have them tell the story in their words, the more people start to relate to that, right? We all, uh, storytelling, storytelling is one of the most powerful tools that we have. Um, you know, going back to ancient religions, right? Things weren't written down for many, many years. Uh, you know, this was all part of the oral tradition. People remember stories and they can relate to stories. And when customers do that or when they describe things and when you show people this is what their story is, it, ha it causes a reaction. It gets people outside their bubble. But in large um, progressive organizations, they do mechanical things as well. They, they take uh, very um, proactive steps to break down these barriers. So, for example, we talked about metrics. You know, uh, how you design the metrics really matters. Who owns what process, you know, uh, matters as well. In, in organizations um, that are very progressive, a CEO will turn to a particular senior vice president and say, I don't want you just to manage the marketing function. I want you to manage the customer acquisition cycle, cradle to grave. That crosses multiple different departments. Or turning to... Um, you know, uh, a, uh, in manufacturing, talking to them and say, I want you to order, uh, to run order fulfillment. So it's everything from the time of the order to the time of shipment. It's not just what happens in manufacturing, right? So that's administrative functions, um, you know, supply chain, all those other kinds of things. So when you broaden someone's responsibilities and measure that end to end and it affects other functions, then you force a level of collaboration between functional areas. Um, so just changing responsibility, metrics, bonus systems at senior levels, trying to drive that out. Having different planning. You know, the, people use OKRs and MBOs today. Well, they tend to make this siloism even more intense because everybody puts together metrics that suit them, not suit the company or suit the customer. So having one set of metrics that, that applies everywhere, a short set of metrics, and um, a short set of initiatives that benefit the business and customers, not just a particular function. When you start to look at things that way and you drive that, you, you tend to make people more uh, organizations, more customer centric and more effective. So, um, you know, there's a whole list of things that progressive companies do to try to get people out of their <laughs> out of their little area to understand customers better, understand how other functions work, what's important to them, how they're measured. Um, those are the kinds of things um, that are done much more systematically to bring down these barriers. So basically, we have to be friends of the C-suite to start in a right foot. It helps. It helps. Buy, buy some coffee, some sandwiches. Tell good jokes. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Show, don't tell. And a, a soft skill that customer success managers, we should always have, or at least it's good to have, is being proactive. And I, what I listen here is a lot of being proactive and go and take the the be the first one there on, on searching for information and contacting the customer. They have the voice here. I will, I will say that something that worked for me before is actually analyzing the people that I'm working with. Customer success is not a one-person job. It's not a team or department. It's a whole organization. That's why it's a culture. But if you're thinking of doing all of this and starting implementing customer success initiatives by yourself, hey, you can, definitely. 
But if you have more than other people with you, allies next to you, that's amazing. So my, I will say that it's always good to find those people who are thinking similar like you, who are customer centric. So you can have someone to brainstorm ideas, first of all. And then when you bring an idea to the table, you have one, two, three people behind you giving you that support. And, and the other one is what it's done already. What do you have near you? Instead of creating something from zero, which is always good, first start with the tools that you already have and improve them in a way that you can use it in your favor. So don't start creating the wheel if there's already someone who did that. Don't start creating fancy stuff if there's someone who already went through that process. You can, again, and it depends on each organization. It depends on the people you're working with. It depends on your knowledge as well. But uh, uh, definitely look into the tools and, and, and what methodologies you have around you. It's a good way. Another strategy that I will say that is good and helped me before is actually voice of the customer framework because if voice of the customer framework you don't only collect the customer feedback sentiment and hear them but you also are able to meet with other departments and when you're meeting with other departments you're brainstorming and that's the place where you can start bringing ideas to the table and we're talking a lot about um, departments and working together and teamwork so how to align different departments when it comes to building a customer success culture? Well, that really needs to be done top down and uh, progressive companies do that, right? So part of it is key business process ownership at the senior executive level that transcend functional boundaries, you know, being very thoughtful and deliberate about that, design of the metric systems, um, uh, strategic business uh, uh, planning, execution review cycles, uh, continuous improvement. You you mentioned um, working collaboratively with other functions. Um, if you have an organization that practices formal continuous improvement methods like Six Sigma or Plan Do Check Act, and they do that as a matter of habit, they do that over and over again. Then they automatically do that outside of functional boundaries. Those are cross-functional teams that get together to work on shared process and product and um, service issues that impact them internally and also with customers. Uh, I I saw a study a little while ago. um, There are um, people who study um, social networks and behavioral dynamics of organizations, and they use all kinds of simulation tools and analytics to try to figure out what's an optimal behavior look like and how do people interact within smaller groups and how do they connect with people in larger groups. Uh, So this is a social network analysis. And uh, what they found was that organizations that were about 70% working within their own functional area within their own group and 30% working cross-functionally, that seemed to be a bit of an optimum number. And what that did was there there was enough cross-pollination, enough creativity, enough uh, learning from other groups, and enough functional specialization and capacity that those two kind of balance each other. So if you think about it, if you're spending 70% of your time working on things that are specific to your group and 30% of your time understanding and working with people in other groups, that provides you some of that broader expertise. It gets you out of your bubble. It gets you talking about customers and competitors and the business, right? Uh, Instead of what's immediately in front of you. So 
there are ways that you can design your organization. There's there are, uh, structural things, activities like cross-functional process improvement projects, um, staff rotations, you know, uh, working on major initiatives for a six-month period, rotating people in and out of that. There's all kinds of ways that you can interact with people from different groups. And the more you know other people, um, the, the better you understand them and the more you can appreciate and the more co you are cooperative with them. So, um, so that is a trick that, that organizations do very deliberately, uh, again, to try to break down those barriers. And to the extent that you bring in customers and have them tell their story and participate in that as well, that really drives the whole organization towards customer centricity. Now, I'm not, I'm not a, 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 let's see, I'm not a soccer expert here. And wait, you're asking, why are you combining soccer with customer success? Because although I'm not a soccer expert, there are teams or there are coaches who sometimes in, in when they're training, they tell the goalkeeper to go and be the, a defender or go and, and play in the middle field. So when it comes to the match, um, they each one of them understands how it feels to be in that position and avoids too many discussion and improves the communication. So that's what I hear here, Ed, is rotating around um, sometimes it's not needed actually for you to go and start doing what a product manager is doing but at least to be next to them and understand what they're doing what value it brings on their end because if you you need to have a good product you need to have uh, someone who develops good the product you have someone who brings the message sell sell and marketing and then you have someone that builds relationship as customer success then we have business analysts and all of that that together we make a really strong mm, body who can walk along with the customer. And and I would also point out what starts all of that? Curiosity. Being uh -huh. curious about how things work and why yeah. is it that salespeople behave the way they do? Why is it that product managers behave the way they do it? Why is it that customers behave the way they do, right? So being curious about that is the stepping stone to all of that. I'm sure a number of people that are listening also have these ideas in their mind around, uh, um, you know, the way the product team is or the way the sales team is. And it's funny because back when I was a CSM, I thought the product team's uh, main job was to say no. <laughs> and then um, as, as I, I <laughs> that's true. Absolutely. Um, and then, and then as I, as I built my career you know, in CS and I started to understand the, um, the driving forces behind how a product uh, roadmap is built, I suddenly understood. And, and it's, it's very interesting when you start to understand that, you know, like you, as CSM, sometimes we, we're so focused on getting our customer what they need that we forget to look at the big picture. We forget to think that actually, you know what, even for that customer, sticking with the roadmap is actually probably the best thing because there are some things that are coming out that are actually a lot more important to them than that one specific feature that you're uh, being told no, that you're getting really, really frustrated about. So um, that, that's one example of building the, you know, the, the knowledge and, and, being able to take a step back and understand how an entire organization around you works to be able to then um, work in this sort of symbiotic you know, environment where each department obviously has their own metrics. And then you also mentioned that, you know, the, the building the metric systems around being able to then drive the customer centric approach. And um, 
Um, you also mentioned, you know, some organizations do OKRs or, you know, what we call them top fives, whatever you want to call them for the, um, for the period, whether it's, you know, a quarter for the, for the fiscal year. Um, far too often I've seen organizations build those, um, OKRs around new business, right? And it's all about new business and lead generation. And what they, what they forget in that, in that situation is that, um, a lot of the other functions within the organization don't have a direct way of con- contributing to that. If you don't start to build out your OKRs or your top fives around what the whole organization can get behind to drive a specific outcome for a customer. And so uh, you, you build these metrics out and then you see the behavior based off of those metrics. So if you want to see the behavior around customer centricity, then you want to make sure that you're building out your metrics around that. Now, obviously, you know, when you look at KPIs, they're going to be um, KPIs that are aligned to um, the way the product needs to operate, the way the sales needs to operate, the way the marketing and CS needs to operate. But when you have these opportunities to align for a quarter or for a fiscal year um, on what is the most important strategic um, uh, things to accomplish for that for that period, think about it from that perspective because that's essentially the behavior that you're going to be able to control um, across the entire organization. Right. And to that end, I mean, I'm always amazed when people go through their set of metrics and they're all very internally focused, right? Very few companies say, what are our customers' goals? And where are we recording them? And how are we tracking against their goals? And show me where that data is, right? So even things like uh, customer success planning, the interface between sales and operations, how are we capturing that? Not just because of the financial ROI stuff, but How is this making the lives of our customers better? Users, middle managers, executives, give me a few metrics that show us how we're making an impact on their business. And when a CEO reinforces that and says, that's why we're in business, things can change quite a bit. Definitely. Placing ourselves in the customer's shoes. Talking about that, um, once I went through the process of building a customer journey map, and I have to say that that's a, a lot of work. It takes time. And it, it, you have to place yourself in the customer's shoes, plus a lot of other factors. Don't you feel that w- once you build a customer journey map, of, or if it's already built, would it be a good exercise to have a meeting with different departments and go through the customer journey again to give well, them a perspective? I've- Yeah, I do a customer journey mapping as part of my consulting practice. And the important thing that I've learned over the years with journey mapping is that it's not about the map. It's about building a shared understanding, a shared commitment, and a shared vision for what you're trying to create. And so the best journey mapping is when you put a cross-functional team together and you go through that process together. When you talk about what are the customer's realities, Having them come in and tell you, this is where this is where we're struggling. This is where things are going well. Getting that, starting with that perspective is that outside in. What, what is it that they are experiencing? And not just you, but have your product people in there, your marketing people, your sales people. You have a small team of people that are hearing the same message. And then you look at, well, how are we meeting those expectations, those needs? And then you start mapping things out. And when you go through that process, it's not the final map that's important. What's important, again, is that understanding and understanding where the problems are and getting commitment. Hey, we got to go fix that, right? Uh, 
So the map is just the artifact from that exercise. It helps you to prioritize what the gaps are and then to go after them. But this is this is a social process. It's not just a documentation process. I agree, definitely. And before we start wrapping up, on both of you, your, your experience when it comes to the customer success, what are those key characteristics or behaviors that you see in companies that have successfully built a customer success culture versus those ones that have not? Like a successful, successful story. So how does a successful company with customer success culture looks like? Well, for me, it's it's those that understand the social process and understanding that, you know, we have there are natural behaviors that exist in these organizations and to be proactive about that. How do we break down those barriers and be very thoughtful and intentional about doing that? So um, so everything that we talked about structurally and mechanically creating the environment where it can happen and then providing those opportunities where it does happen. So bringing in customers as much as you possibly can, make them part of the conversation. They're the most important people in the process and they're rarely in the room. How do you get them in the room? How do you get them participating? Customer advisory boards, um, you know, bring them in their data, uh, capture their experiences, play that back for people. Uh, have them participate in providing guidance on process improvement projects. I'm working with a client right now. We did exactly that. Before we did anything, we went out and talked to about 20 different customers. And we were building this out and we kept bringing them in saying, well, we think it's this. Are we getting this? Yeah, kind of, but it's more like this. Okay, that kind of guidance all along the way. Customers want to do that. They really do. If you ask them, hey, we need your help. We want to make this better for you. We want to make this better for customers just like you. They'll carve out the time. They will absolutely do that because you're listening to them. You care and you want to do something about it. Of course, they're going to take the time to do that. So take advantage of that, right? And uh, it works really well. So if you do all those things, you understand how organizations behave and what you need to do to try to, you know, very proactively break down those barriers and you amplify the customer's voices as best you can, then you tend to build a culture that is much more customer focused. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And um, just to add to that, I think also building out um, accountability and ownership for the customer experience on all levels, I think is extremely important. If you have a, you know, a customer with a good experience or a customer with a bad experience, being able to understand the reasons behind why that is, so then we can co continuously improve where we can to be able to drive um, the right customer experience going, you know, going forward. And then I think um, the the most successful um, organizations with uh, customer centric cultures are the ones where everybody has an innate ownership of the customer experience and not that feeling of well, actually, no, my job is done. Now it's your job. So if things are going wrong, that's your problem, not my problem. And um, when 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 we can when we can avoid an environment where people feel like that and instead everybody comes together and says, well, let's actually figure out where in the customer journey we could have done things better. Um, and there might be three or four points where we can actually improve things from, you know, a couple of different uh, cross-functional teams. It's, it's a beautiful environment to, to build because um, everyone's working towards uh, a good customer journey so that when we actually do see that, you know, good customer experience coming and shining through, 
everyone feels like there's ownership on that as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's definitely a lot of things to look at in those situations. I think it's really important to, to understand, I guess, you know, how, um, what stage in the customer centric, um, culture, the organization that you work for is at to be able to then, um, drive the, the level of success that you want uh, within the organization. It's time to, to wrap up. It's time to end today's episode, but, um, we never end without any uh, last words of our guest today. What would one minute, um, Ed, could you give in one minute an advice to that customer success professional who wants to build a customer success culture? What advice would you give them? Well, be curious. Number one, mm -hmm. uh, take different perspectives and ask other people around you to take different perspectives. And show, don't tell. I would say if you can do those three things, you're going to move your organization forward. Uh, Ed took the words out of my mouth, but I think um, you know, one thing that I, I think all CSMs, you know, trying to build a customer-centric um, environment is to ask yourself and others around you um, to think about it from the customer's perspective. And when, and, you know, that's very similar to what Ed said, but the, 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 where it starts is to understand how what you're doing impacts the customer and how the customer perceives uh, what you're doing. And it's not just a CSM-focused thing. It's not just a customer-facing team thing. It's, it's across the entire organization to really start to think about how do you bring the customer's perspective into what you're doing to be able to then drive that customer-centric approach across the organization. I would like to add as well that be patient. Be patient, be patient be patient. And that will be it for our episode today on building customer success culture. And um, there's a lot, there's uh, other questions and there are a lot of uh, more details that we could have given, but we have to try to grab everything and put it in this one hour um, recording of the episode. I hope we did a good job. Ed, thank you so much for your time. Nav, it's a pleasure for me as well, working with you as usual. And, um, Remember, people, that this is a community that we are all close. It's a community where if you have questions, you can always go to LinkedIn. You can always go to other customer success communities. And remember that we are now collaborating with Customer Success Connect that brings together professionals at all levels of their journey to help you. And there's a lot of good resources. So thank you so much for your time. Please follow the podcast and bye-bye. that wraps up another episode of Customer Success Talks. We have gained a lot from Ed and Nav today. We hope you have found their ideas and strategies helpful. Remember, we are on this journey together, learning and trying new things to become better customer success professionals. If you have enjoyed our chat today, please make sure to follow our podcast for more discussions on real challenges, experts advice in the world of customer success. We appreciate your support and can't wait to bring you more interesting episodes. So let's grow, learn, and let's keep improving the world of customer success. Until next time.